Greetings, listeners and learners. You are now tuned into the Complexion of Teaching and Learning, a podcast docu-series in which we traverse across time to explore the socio-historical, political, and professional experiences of educators of color. I'm your host and co-learner, Brandon White, English language art specialist for Unbound Ed, where we seek to serve students across the country by keeping our work and learning grounded within the intersection of equity, instruction, content, and standards. In this episode, we will explore the undertold contemporary experiences that educators of color must navigate as a result of this nation's past and present. Throughout the episode, we'll be attending to two of Unbounded's five charges by talking about race systematically and examining bias in its role in our work and learning. I hope the reflections in this episode and the discussion questions available at the end provide fuel for meaningful, necessary and courageous conversations that you can have about how teaching and learning have evolved in this racialized country. If you're just tuning in, I encourage you to listen to the previous episodes which explore the experiences of educators of color before, during, and right after chattel slavery, continuing into the Jim Crow era, U.S. expansion, and the impacts of the Brown versus Board decision. Last episode, we explored how legacies of racism before and shortly after Brown v. Board impacted the modern-day experiences of many educators of color, which has led to a disintegration of their bodies, professional experiences, and educational heritages. While the results of this disintegration process are as wide and varied as the color and ethnicity spectrum of educators of color, it has often involved the following. Minimizing opportunities to grow their instructional practice, hypertaxing their cultural capital with students with little to no pay, expecting them to implement racist policies, practices, and procedures with students who look like them, while leaving out their own culture's legacies of successfully teaching and learning. All this, ultimately, discourages many K-12 students of color from seeing themselves as educators, thus producing an evergreen oppression machine. But as Dr. Alfred Tatum and Chris Emden noted at the end of our previous episode, there are ways forward that can weaken the marriage between present-day bias and routinely updated racist systems, encouraging the arrival of a new normal in education, where marginalized legacies of educators of color are embraced to inform the best policies, practices, and procedures for student and community growth. How do or how should everyday educators of color on the ground level pursue this goal? Also, how does and how have their thought leaders and theorists pushed against this environment? What role does using standards play in the advancement towards equity? In this episode, we will have experts and practitioners help us find answers. So right now, as we speak, there are educators of color that are doing what they can to not succumb to what my hometown ed hero Bettina Love calls the educational survival complex doing their best not to compromise their positive community-oriented mission with the counter-progressive beliefs, attitudes, policies, and procedures that may populate their professional spaces. As shared in detail in Episode 6, this can be an extremely challenging thing to do. I myself, as liberatory as I wanted to be and could be in the classroom, I definitely fell into moments of low expectations, doubt-speaking, and harmful curriculum provisions. Why? Because not only is teaching hard, but teaching in a racialized society is even harder. Education researcher Deborah Ball noted that teachers on average make 20 decisions within 1 minute and 28 seconds. 
The internal biases, concerns, and values that pair with the external factors of the environment inform whether or not those choices lead to providing students with grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful instruction. Sharif el retired Philadelphia school principal, former U.S. Department of Education Principal Ambassador Fellow, and founder and CEO of the Center for Black Educator Development, explains why the powerful presence and practice of educators is important in the face of these challenges. I mean, to be honest, I mean, in a nutshell, that means we are uh, giving our, our students poisoned water. You know, it is, uh, you know, one of the things I've really been trying to stress to people is when Malcolm X asked the people like, who taught you to hate yourself? Uh, that question and that framing needs to be asked about students inside schools. You know, how do they develop a positive racial identity when they go from pre-K to 12 and don't see themselves in the literature, don't see themselves as contributors to, to the other content and disciplines that are being taught, when they don't see themselves uh, being centered in the classrooms and they don't see any mirrors whatsoever, all they get are windows. And conversely, the white children who from pre-K all the way through 12th grade and beyond never had any teacher diversity, never had any different perspectives. All they've been taught are the contributions and centering of white people uh, that all the heroes of the world have been white, all the contributors and builders of society have been white. How can they not start ingesting and, and internalizing a uh, uh, white supremacist worldview? How can they not? Like, you know, because they've been deliberately taught that over years. And conversely, black children, brown children have been taught the exact opposite that you have no place here. So when we talk about uh, a lack of belongingness that so many children of color have in schools. It's not just how they're treated physically, it's how they're also treated intellectually and culturally and emotionally, spiritually, right? Like they, they are living a, in an existence where it says you don't belong here at all, right? And so when we don't resist, and that's what, when we talk about like resistance, resistance comes in all forms. When we gird our students with the, the armor and the tools and the shields to navigate that space, that's resistance. When they can question what's being taught, that is resistance. While Almeki brings up great points, as we explored in the previous episode, this can certainly bring its own unique wear and tear. Leader of the Equity Literacy Institute and author of several papers and articles, including Avoiding Racial Equity Detours, Education activist Paul Gorski recognizes this wear and tear and the consequences it reaps. I especially know a lot of teachers of color who are experiencing like racial battle fatigue, just the day-to-day, the coping with the sort of day-to-day manifestations of racism. Some of that's through microaggression. Some of it is through the implications of, or, or the outcomes of structural racism. And uh, teachers of color in particular are leaving schools at higher rates than, than white teachers. So it's having that, that impact for sure. How do we stay sane during our service, avoid burnout and avoid professional pushout? Dr. Kofi Lomate, author, professor, and mentor to a whole generation of African-American education thought leaders, shares what he believes are strong answers to this question. I always tell students, that we have three responsibilities as students. And I, and I think that we're all still students. So these are all, these are three responsibilities that we still have. 
two I'll just mention briefly and I'll focus on the third one. The first responsibility we have as students is to take care of our health, what we eat, exercise we do, et cetera, et cetera. The second responsibility that we, that we have is to be socially active. We live in a society where people are continuously discriminated against based upon their race, their gender, the amount of money they have in the bank, their height, their weight, their beauty, their ableism, their uh, sexual orientation, their religious preferences, and other illegitimate forms of exclusion. And I contend that as students, as long as those isms exist, we continue to have a responsibility to struggle against them, to be social activists. So the first thing is taking care of our body. The second thing is being social activists. The third thing is to study. And studying has two dimensions. If we're physically in school, the first dimension is studying to be successful in classes and to learn information. The second dimension is to study about ourselves, as I said before, to study about our, our own people, to study about the relationship between our people and other people in the world, and doing that um, enables us to utilize the knowledge that we gain in school to better our own community. Getting the opportunity to see yourself, your own cultural ways of being, teaching, learning, and doing is essential for educators of color. If they are to sustain themselves and their instruction as educators within counter-equity environments. Indigenous scholars and University of Arizona teacher prep experts Jeremy Garcia and Valerie Shirley strongly assert that for developing educators of indigenous nations, this looks like tapping into indigenous content knowledge, pedagogies and experiences. I think some of the uh, pedagogical approaches from an indigenous traditional perspective would be um, in terms of incorporating it into the educational environment of students in the current day would mean that um, community members are integrated and invited into the classroom, whether it's through the curriculum and sharing their knowledge, their traditional stories or their personal experiences, uh, they embody a wealth of knowledge that adds to the curriculum for the students. To expand on that, I think that um, as Dr. Shirley was sharing, there's also the historical context to um, the realities, right, uh, within Dr. Shirley's work on um, social justice pedagogies um, from an indigenous context. There's, there's this notion of truth-telling that is essential that our students begin to understand uh, the history of, of what occurred uh, with colonialism. Uh, and this is also inclusive beyond the time frame of examining boarding school but, and, and the uh, historical trauma that continues to exist today as a remnant of that. But there are other forms of, of issues, critical issues, where we continue to see notions of settler colonialism impacting um, indigenous sovereignty, uh, tribal sovereignty, their rights, 
And um, so it's important that students begin to see in ways in which they can draw upon their traditional knowledge and value systems to be able to understand and examine these current and contemporary issues that their communities face. So what we've encouraged our candidates uh, to, to hold um, hold hold true to their to their teaching identity is this idea of examining uh, inequities within society. Um, so we've encouraged them to think about what it means to be in solidarity with a variety of contexts, uh, a variety of social political issues. Uh, and so examining ideas around what does it mean to think about uh, ideas around class, race, gender, sexuality, um, relationship through to an indigenous uh, perspective or lens. How does that then take on a different kind of meaning? So when we when teachers are encouraged to think that way, I think that when they enter the, their schooling spaces and contexts, uh, that may be one uh, additional. Um, um, element that might be working against them. And uh, so the pressure to sustain that is something that we're also working to think about how do we support them in the process and how do we continue to build capacity around that. From my African-American perspective, this pursuit of finding, maintaining, and executing my cultural knowledge, pedagogies, and experiences was an important one for me as a classroom teacher. Solely depending on school institutions over education institutions would be a mistake because oftentimes the very institutions that expect professional development from their staff, as described in the previous episode, can set the environment that encourages arrested professional development and onset professional withering. In other words, I couldn't get my fuel solely from these folks. My identity as a teacher had to inform systems, not the other way around. So constantly seeking, deepening, and operationalizing my whys was critical to my success and survival. Chris Emden, Columbia University professor, hip-hop ed founder, and author of the books for white folks who teach in the hood and ratchetdemics, explains this need a bit better, as well as the benefits it provides. You know, I think every single day I go through processes where I'm going through a process of having to navigate the nature of academia um, I don't think you avoid it. I think that you ground yourself in what your mission is so that you can overcome it. There's no avoidance. The nature of higher education, the nature of academia, the nature of academic success, as it has been defined in the contemporary era, requires your adoption of some form of white supremacist ideologies. It is a piece of the process. I think some folks are doing work to be able to uh, um, detach that from what higher education is and it's still work that needs to be done but the nature of that work means that you adopt it but you have to ground yourself in the work and the people and then you can win you know one of my favorite quotes is uh, I think it's a Fred Fanon quote it says anything could be explained to the people on a simple condition that you want them to understand however I also believe that you cannot explain something to the people unless you are with the people and so you know for me it's a deliberate intentional act to be in the hood to mm-hmm. be in the communities, mm-hmm. to engage with young folks of color. Because that once you were with them, you know how to serve the bullshit. Because, you, because your discernment is activated. Your discernment is activated based on your relationship to the community. So that when you enter into spaces, you can see the ideologies of the institutions coming at you, attempting to permeate through your psyche. And then you can avoid that because you're leaning towards the community. You could dodge, you, you dodge that 
bullet because you're always leaning towards where the community takes you. I, I wish the folks who are listening could, could see my body movement. And it's the thing with us, man. Like a lot of, a lot of even what I'm sharing cannot be fully grasped through the words. When you're leaning to the hood, you can avoid the bullets of the oppressor. Professor, literacy specialist, and author of the books Reading for Their Life, Rebuilding the Textual Lineages of African-American Adolescent Males and Teaching Black Boys in the Elementary Grades, Dr. Alfred Tatum describes this process as protecting the new car smell. I'll say it this way. You have to protect the new car smell. And what I mean by that, when you get this new car, it smells, you get excited. Uh, there's nothing that could... Um, sort of rob you of that rich and powerful experience. But what happens, you enter environments, the field of education writ large, and there's this uh, mental wearing or this psychosis. So if you enter an environment and the only thing you hear about students is negative, that penetrates the psyche. And so you always need to counterbalance that <clears throat> with wait a minute, <clears throat> this is not absolutely uh, true. Uh, I need to interrogate this further. Ask the question, what do I need to become smarter about? Or how did we arrive to this place uh, as a people? It could not have all been on uh, rocky soil with no excellence. And so you, uh, in terms of protecting that new car smell, when you go back into our archives <clears throat> and ask the question, um, we're being asked to teach reading or mathematics or science this way, but it's very different from how science was thrust upon uh, someone emerging from emancipation, becoming chemist for the first time or becoming biologist uh, for the first time or thinking about um, um, beyond the Earth's atmosphere for the first time. I mean, all of these things, or, or writing uh, very powerful letters to the political forces to be in the day, or uh, starting schools for the first time. When you do that, it's a very, very powerful counterbalance to being uh, besieged with data. Because everything that you're going to hear is uh, basic and proficient, not successful, um, it's going to be a new data chart with a new data table. Uh, everyone's going to have a solution. Do culturally this, do uh, social emotional, emotional this. But we have to remember that we are in a position not only to protect our own psyche, but make sure it does not penetrate the psyche of the young people who we're there to educate and protect because they began to uh, surrender their life chances or lose self-confidence uh, in education because they read our body before they read any text that they put in front of them. So if we're not walking in the educational light that said this is the way to shape your pathway forward, students begin to see that and it becomes this negative reciprocity. Students began to give up, teachers began to give up, but we have to have a strong refusal as educators to ever give up in the presence of our students or diminish uh, their um, latent power that resides deep within that they just can't get access to because we haven't found a way uh, to shape an education that says, 
this is why you're doing this. This is why it's important. Here will be uh, the outcomes. And it then becomes your responsibility to protect those who come after you across all uh, the different disciplines. New car smell, protect the psychosis. Don't let this penetrate the belief systems of our uh, students. Now, I'm not going to lie. I admittedly worry sometimes that the idea of hanging in there and standing firm in these systems, while important, can be used to deflect the work required by other folks in the education environment. We've done this with students from time to time. We ask them to exercise grit and resilience when it comes to receiving instruction, but not always picking up the same charge when it comes to delivering it. Where is our grit in addressing the systemic racism they deal with in our schools with the tools and energy we have left? With that being said, if you need to get out, get out. Shoot, I did. Why you think I'm here doing this podcast? But know that getting out of a toxic K-12 institution doesn't necessarily mean getting out of your purpose and profession. Georgia State University professor and author of the book, The Black Shoals, Offshore Formations of Black and Native Studies, Dr. Tiffany King explains the other avenues educators of color can take and have taken to pursue their purpose outside of traditional K-12 education. Some of the um, scholar activists that I know who started in the, um, like the K-12 system and then became uh, professors who studied education. So at the local level, I'm thinking about um, my colleague Jillian Ford, uh, who's at Kennesaw State, and um, Dr. Bettina Love, who's at uh, the University of Georgia, right? And so they've been in the public education system. They're folks who, well, their embodiment was um, a problem for the K-12 system, but also what they taught, right? And so in addition to um, being forced to leave the, the K-12 system, they reinvented themselves in the university, right? And so people generally I think of, like if you move to the university and do higher ed, um, you kind of taken yourself away from the public education system, but they don't. They re-engage K-12 systems in a different way, right? Because in addition to their publications that they publish in places like Rethinking Schools and Radical Teachers, they do this um, work through organizations in the Atlanta metro area like Stronger Together and Black Teachers Matter, um, where they actually have like off-site camps and workshops for Black students and Black parents. They do freedom schools. They do all this unpaid kind of advocacy work when they have to go into a teacher-student a meeting, a teacher and a student and a parent, um, particularly Black parents whose students are being disciplined or not treated right. And so they have to do this additional kind of unpaid work, right, as an educator um, to actually supplement, not even supplement, but create curriculum that actually helps Black students and Black teachers unlearn what the state is telling them. Keeping the cultural and professional heritages of teaching and learning alive in whichever sphere of the education work is important. These legacies, illustrated throughout this podcast journey, have been often encapsulated under the modern academia umbrella called culturally responsive teaching, 
or culturally informed teaching, or culturally sustaining pedagogy, or liberatory pedagogy. The list of similar names and similar practices can go on as long as a Wu-Tang crew roster and alias list. Important thought leaders in capturing these legacies and best instructional practices have included, but certainly aren't limited to, the likes of Geneva Gay, Paulo Freire, Gloria Latson Billings, Sonia Nieto, Asa Hilliard, Carol Lee, Juwanza Kunjufu, Malefi Asante, Lisa Delpit, and Sandy Grant. They have since passed the torch to folks like Zaretta Hammond, Bettina Love, Django Paris, Chris Emden, Goldie Muhammad, Valerie Shirley, Jeremy Garcia, Rochelle Gutierrez, Danny Martin, and Eve Tuck. Now, if you're an educator, the question is this. How many of these names did your teacher preparation programs familiarize you with? What about the professional learning systems in the traditional districts or networks you currently work in? And of course, it's bigger than the names. The names are doorways to diversified and better tailored approaches toward diverse learner success, but they're often shut out. Paul Gorski further explains the lack of inclusion of educators of color in thought leadership. In particular, how our Western education positions, structures, and policies impact the culturally responsive teaching contributions these thought leaders have offered. You know, it's kind of interesting, and uh, there's pedagogical theorists, but even to me, what's interesting is even in the context of these conversations about equity and justice, that it seems like somehow, you know, Peggy McIntosh becomes really popular. Uh, uh, Robin D'Angelo gets really popular. I get popular. And that's attributable in large part to our whiteness and to the willingness of white educators to hear messages from us. And, uh, you know, one thing I reflect on a lot, too, is, you know, there's, you know, uh, James Baldwin was talking. He was maybe not using the term white fragility or white privilege, but he He's talking about all the same thing. So all of the knowledge, especially around equity and justice issues that's coming out of white people, usually is stuff that we have learned from uh, theorists of color, uh, theories developed by people of color, uh, critical race theory and, and those sorts of things. Uh, and, uh, and part of what gives someone like me a platform, and this is something I have to reflect on a lot, is uh, that I can go out on that stage, you know, I'm about to do this keynote and say something that, and you would be heard completely differently saying the same thing that I'm saying with the same tone I'm saying it and, and everything like that. So uh, it, it really does a disservice because I think when it's sort of filtered through a lens of whiteness, it often loses some of its politics. It loses some of its... Uh, uh, directness. Uh, it, it loses some of its sort of deep anti-racist vibe uh, and instead comes out as, you know, how do I make this easy for white people to hear? Gorski brings up some things I would notice over time as an educator. Things in terms like project-based learning, collaborative learning, service learning, constructivist teaching would pop up. And I learned about African and African-American teaching and learning heritages at the same time. And I realized that many of these terms and concepts are just old melanated programming done in a more recent westernized white coding language. Just European words used to tell an old African education story. 
Sharif El Meki continues to explain this dynamic. The fact that you can go to, to a teacher college and learn about Piaget and Dewey and Horace Mann, but don't learn anything about black contributors to the educational space, that you're not learning about the, the uh, Mary McLeod Bethunes and, the, and uh, the Lucy Craft uh, Laney's, like if you're not learning about them, if you're not learning about the, uh, the 5,000 community, black community schools that were built uh, during reconstruction, if you're not learning about that and that they were successful, all right? That was more, more uh, black people became more literate during those times than any group of people in, in you know, human history, right? And so what was making them successful? How with all the trauma that was going on, all the violence, like as we were building schools, they were burning them down, right? We didn't have capital, right? We have the story, James Anderson tells the story of like, you know, one place they were building a school and this old woman came and she said, I have nothing but this copper penny and it is for the education of black children. That's what they were doing, you know, whether they were donating oxen, whether they were felling trees, to build these log houses, these one room school houses, like that was the commitment and things like that. You don't learn about that because it is so uh, Eurocentric and that is such the default. Whiteness is such the default that if you just go by just what's normal, what's the status quo, that means you are automatically promoting one perspective at the expense of everyone else. So many of us enter this profession under-equipped, become overwhelmed, and remain under-supported. While far from universal, there are movements and organizations that support the work of carrying and passing the torches of culturally responsive teaching. For me, it was the work done at the Rochester Teacher Center, led by Dr. Susan G. Goodwin, Yolanda Montalvo, and the late great Ellen Swartz. For those educators of color in the Philly area and beyond, the Center for Black Educator Development is providing professional learning that champions being true to self, true to students, community, and ancestry. Elmeki further explains the center's professional learning agenda. And so that's one of the reasons that the Center for Black Educator Development, one of our four pillars, pedagogy is one, because we see all these people who say, I'm not prepared to teach black and brown children. I don't know how to teach black and brown children. I don't know how to build relationships with them. Like, you know what? There's a group of folks who've done this really well for a really long time. You know what? And they were black educators. So why is it that they are not that story, those skills, those practices aren't being centered in our teacher colleges, in our in-service programs and everywhere else. And that's why for us, that is absolutely, you know, a crucial part of the work that we do um, at the center. As I think about the work these educators of color are doing to cultivate oppression-proof teachers through the lens of culturally responsive teaching, I can't help but think about the firestorm taking place now regarding critical race theory and the impact it may have on this work. During this political era, we are seeing school boards and state houses create, push, and pass policy that prohibits using critical race theory in K-12 schools citing it as divisive. I think this does a few things. One, what is being labeled as divisive is a deflection of what is producing discomfort. Two, it is an attempt to mask and maintain the divisiveness that already exists in the United States, especially in its education system, as illustrated through this podcast alone. 
three, there are probably more K-12 educators teaching that Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves and Christopher Columbus discovered America than there are teachers teaching straight up critical race theory. But targeting this CRT, critical race theory, can bring stigmatization to another CRT, culturally responsive teaching, which is the modernized torch carrying the old flames of culturally distinct ways of teaching and learning. The sociopolitical landscape is ripe for many to confuse one for the other, although there are critical differences. Although I encourage everyone listening to investigate the differences for themselves, I would submit that the biggest difference is that critical race theory is primarily about investigating how American policies, organizations, and habits of mind produce outcomes that oppress racial and ethnic identities. Culturally responsive teaching is primarily about recognizing racial and ethnic identities as a gateway to provide grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful instruction. Now, this may include the building of sociopolitical awareness as Dr. Gloria Latson Billings cites, but this does not equal sociopolitical indoctrination. Exploring how society treats identity is an important part of validating and expanding student identity, which is an essential part of good teaching and has been by countless cultures for countless years. Any form of education that separates identity from learning is not education, it's control. Educators like Elmecki, Gorski, King, Emden, Tatum, Shirley, and Garcia recognize this. As I was beginning to unearth and activate my cultural education heritages based on rigor, relevance, and relationships, there was a new philosophical and instructional push that was spreading that defined the 2010s in education, and that was nationalized Common Core Standards. I, as a relatively new teacher, didn't think much of it because there wasn't much of a shift that was necessary for me as a new teacher. However, many of my colleagues were either apathetic or bothered, claiming, and here's another initiative that will just go away, or these standards are going to be asking students to do too much, or these standards are racially oppressive. It didn't help that the standards at the time were being tied in with teacher evaluation and standardized testing. I was actually bracing myself for the racial worst. But as I explored the standards, I started to notice and wonder some things. First, I thought these were rigorous benchmarks, and they gave me good goalposts to help me make sure I wasn't pushing woke content with weak rigor and instruction. I also noticed some instructional values and techniques that overlapped with my growing awareness of African-American teaching and learning traditions, particularly in the emphasis on speaking and learning standards for dynamic discourse, knowing the student before pushing the student through reader and task considerations multi-dynamic word interpretation and figurative language, valuing the lesson or central idea of a story, and diving into multiple perspectives. Now don't get me wrong, I don't think David Coleman and the exclusively white team of standards writers said, hey, let's free the people by making standards that include the traditions of educators of color. But I did believe that they made something that I could use to pursue that. Dr. Tangi Reed Marshall, director of P-12 practice at the Education Trust, shares where the legacies of culturally responsive teacher practices intersect with the standards, and where there's often confusion in the perception and reception of standards. Families send their children to a place called school. When they send them there, there's an expectation that they learn stuff, right? Like, and here's like the secret 
kids expect to learn stuff when they go to school. Like they expect that when I go to school, I'm going to come on the other side knowing more about stuff or ideas than when I got there. Standards exist everywhere, full stop. The standards are things that kids need to do to demonstrate that they spent some real useful time in school learning stuff. What we're all talking about is how you get them to learn stuff. How do you get them to learn the stuff and do the things that standards are asking them to do? When I hear people say, you know, standards are bad and you shouldn't be doing standards because standards are harmful. My question to them is, tell me after 10 months of time sitting in classrooms across this nation, which thing does the standard ask a kid to do that the kid should not be able to do? Tell me which one. Like, I want to know the standard that a kid should not have to learn how to do. And what is the harm in the kid knowing how to do the thing the standard is asking of them to do? I think the main issue is that because a lot of people don't understand the triangular relationship between the standard, the curriculum, and the assessment, they throw them all in the same pot, right? The standard is the skill you got to learn. Like you and I can discuss verbs because like we're lit heads, right? And like lit nerds and we can like, you know, what is the verb? The verb is the action that a kid's being asked to demonstrate they can do, right? Like, can you do this thing called analyze a text or analyze a topic from multiple perspectives using different authors? That is a skill. Now, the question is, from a pedagogical perspective that Dr. Billings is talking about, Zaretta Hammond is talking about, is how do you get the child to do the skill called analyze a topic from multiple discussions, from multiple perspectives and multiple authors? And then from the curriculum side, what are the tools that you are using to get to the pedagogy to help kids evidence the skill? That's the question. And the cultural relevance is the pedagogical approach of tapping into who that child is as a human being who lives inside a body called blackness from American standards and ideas. And how can you, said teacher, take your deficit filter out of the way to allow you to see the child who lives inside the black body as equally intellectually capable as any other child. And you pull in the texts that the, the text that don't tear the child apart and that don't send the child thinking that they are somehow less than. That's the relationship as I see it. Former U.S. Education Secretary Dr. John B. King further explores how the core standards in culturally affirming and meaningful instruction don't have to be mutually exclusive. 
I think this idea of rigorous expectations, you know, equipping students with the tools that they need for success after K-12 or P-12 is hugely important, and that is certainly very much the spirit of the standards. Um, but also the standards are equipping students with the tools they need to make our society more just. You know, so you think about um, the level of skill that you need as a reader to uh, really understand Dr. King's uh, letter from Birmingham Jail, right? And in that piece, it, it it's beautifully written. It draws on uh, history, philosophy, political science. Uh, so you need a, you need a body of content knowledge. You need uh, skills as a critical reader. And if you have those, you can both make sense of that letter, understand its power, and then apply it in your own work to make our society more just. And to me, that's very much consistent with uh, you know, the spirit. All this talk is taking me back to my middle school ELA class, where in our standards-aligned curriculum, we read the book A Long Walk to Water by Linda Sue Park. This is a powerful true story about a young man making a harrowing escape from the Sudanese Civil War, surviving in a refugee camp, immigrating to Rochester, New York, and growing up to create a nonprofit organization that builds clean water wells in South Sudan. While the story alone was engaging, and the curriculum paired with the story was rigorous, how could all of that be amplified with relevance? Well, we lived in Rochester, where the main character immigrated to, and where other Sudanese refugees immigrated to, so we had one member from that community come in to speak to the class about his experience. We dove into local newspaper articles about the influx of refugees coming into Rochester from other nationalities and ethnicities. And we explored the value of water in our own societies, ultimately doing fundraising for the main character's nonprofit. Looking back, there were so many more things I would have liked to have done better. Cultural funds of knowledge to have weaved deeper. More explicit text-dependent connections between the central text and the supporting text and its visuals. But of course, hindsight is 2020. But the pursuit of best balanced pedagogy continues with educators in my shoes and skin across the country. 2016-2017 Baltimore County Public School System Teacher of the Year, Corey Carter, knows what it means to try to put all of this into real practice with real students. He highlights some important instructional overlap between the standards and culturally responsive teaching. The students are not empty vessels when they come to us. They're not something that, you know, we are we are here to fill up with, you know, this this knowledge that we have that they are missing, that they are they are empty of. Um, and so, even like, obviously, in any system, there are going to be, you know, processes of evaluation and and ways of measuring progress, um, but even the notion of being below grade level, like, you know, if we, if we just wrestle with that for a second, 
Like, what does that, what does that really mean? Like, if you strip that away, you know, if I approach a student on the bus stop, and I think about like, oh yeah, this kid on the corner right here is, is below grade level. Like, what does that mean outside of the school building, right? And really, if we wrestle with that question and think about everything that that they do have, their interests, their passions, their knowledge, their ways of wrestling with problems, um, their ways of avoiding problems, um, their triggers, their their obsessions. Like if we if we think about those things, and then because that's things that people have. That's part of humanity. That's that's what a that's what a person possesses as a result of lived experiences, right? So if you think about all of those things and then jump back into the classroom, now you look at the, the grade level standards and now um, having this understanding of this, of this person as a whole being, seeing them as a human through all of these different lenses, it's like, okay, well, these are, these are different access points that, that are, are just different ways of, of um, reaching these standards. And I think that's what, at the heart, that's what CRT is, is about in, in many ways is, um, you know, how am I tapping into the fullness of this person and, and using that to access this curriculum? And, you know, what I'm grateful about Joetta Hammond's approach is that she also pulls in the research. If we tap into, like, Zoya Hammond, how she looks at the, the research around brain development, too, and thinking about, um, you know, where is this person developmentally, but also we look at the other aspects that I talked about through their lived experience, what are the different aspects of how they can access and understand this material. Um, you can pull all those things together and really see students in a different light, not from a deficit mindset, but more so from, um, you know, what are the opportunities that I have to help this individual reach these standards? Now, it is important to note that while culturally responsive and standards-based teaching don't need to be mutually exclusive, they also shouldn't necessarily be viewed as identical in purpose either. Dr. Kofi Lomate shares his thoughts about how the standards are too often being used and about the gaps the standards may not fill in. The way the standards have become so fundamental right now, there's very little room to fit anything else in and still enable students to, to be successful. But even with that, I would say that whatever opportunities that we have as educators, we ought to try to incorporate some of this uh, culturally relevant information into the curriculum. Otherwise, we're doing a gross disservice to non-white students. And to white students too, for that matter. The experiences of different groups of people around the world, um, that's, that's valuable information, valuable knowledge, valuable education for all children, for all people. And um, I think it is important to the extent that we can to incorporate that into the classroom. 
unfortunately, it doesn't happen. And it's not surprising that it doesn't happen because it's not an accident. The intention was not for that to occur. You know, it's not an accident that, for example, we don't learn in schools that the first people to uh, develop the 365 and one quarter day calendar were Africans in Liberia. Or, or that the people that developed uh, the smelting of steel process and the um, uh, embalming process uh, were Africans and that the embalming process is used by the ancient Africans um, still baffle modern day scientists. They still don't know how it was done. Um, you know, we, we talk about um, the Pythagorean theorem. Um, Pythagoras studied those concepts with Africans. Those concepts were developed long before he was around. And similarly, you you, you read in there um, about um, um, the father of medicine, Hippocrates, and the, you know the new doctors take the Hippocratic oath to serve all people well and to not harm anybody. Um, they were physicians in Africa long before Hippocrates, but yet he's considered the father of medicine. So you, you see how this affects the educational experience of children. If, if they can't see them, what I say, they can't see themselves in the curriculum, if they can't see people who look like them as doctors, if they can't see people who look like them as, um, you know, geologists, um, then they don't envision themselves being able to do that. If they don't see people who look like them in books, if they don't see people who, on the walls in their schools who look like them, if their teachers don't look like them, some of them at least, then the likelihood is not good that these students are going to find success because they're gonna view success as something that's in the domain of people who don't look like them. As an ELA teacher, I was definitely caught in the awkward dance between appreciating the rigor of the then unpopular Common Core standards, but not always appreciating the curriculum that they were always attached to. In moments where the curriculum was rich in rigor, but soaked in bias, I had to do what Dr. Gloria Latson Billings has called for in moments like this which was to deconstruct the curriculum to identify ethnocentric weak spots and reconstruct the curriculum with counter-narrative texts and instructional practices. This wasn't always easy, and it wasn't always well done, largely because there often wasn't time or coaching on how to approach this. However, Senior Director of the Indigenous Teacher Education Project, Valerie Shirley, and Indigenous Curriculum Specialist, Jeremy Garcia, break down the considerations and actions required to productively fuse mainstream standards with ancestral streams of teaching and learning. There is a tension in that, and that's something that we work through, especially if we're working to privilege and promote our indigenous communities, their knowledge systems, their backgrounds, their languages. If that's first and foremost what we're doing to 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 transform schooling for Indigenous students, then we also have to think about what is the most beneficial for our students in terms of the curriculum. 
And so within the curriculum, we focus on creating curriculum from within, from within the different various social or environmental issues that are happening within our, our communities. And so when that happens, there is there are connections to uh, standards, math, literacy, science, and but that's not first and foremost what we're doing within this process. And if we're working to develop a critical consciousness within the students, that also works to empower them to create change within their communities. Well, we're starting with examining these different social and environmental issues within the curriculum. And when that happens, the teachers tend to have their ideas around the bigger picture of these um, social and environmental issues. And then once they have the bigger picture around what they want to do and engage their students in, they're engaging them in deep levels of critical thinking. And so there are definitely going to be connections to standards. But the standards in this case, they're not first and foremost in creating curriculum. The idea around some of these environmental and social justice issues is first and foremost. And so standards comes in after the whole idea develops. Right. And, and I think that, you know, in this kind of work, you know, there's a common um, saying across indigenous communities, and I know for Hopi, um, it, it's commonly stated, but there's this like, notion of braiding and that there's no question that we certainly want our students to be able to uh, navigate society and be able to advocate for themselves, to be able to uh, understand um, decision-making and the ways in which it's coming at uh, the various, you know, uh, Proposals, for example, of tribal nations are receiving. So there's, there's certainly, we when we talk about teachers as nation builders, we do want them to have honor this notion of braiding in that their indigenous knowledge is on one strand, and and the other is this Western uh, academic knowledge system, and the braiding of that is is what we're we're after. But oftentimes, um, the other string is much. Um, maybe uh, for lack of a better analogy, it's maybe much shorter or maybe even non-existent in some cases. So the idea of making visible and as, and as, as, as much as possible within the learning experiences of Native students, the idea of their own identity and knowledge systems, and that's what's been missing. And so the reason we approach the, this idea of generating curriculum from within is that Oftentimes, we, there's some unlearning that has to happen within our, our teachers or within our students of because the field of education has been so prominent in telling, uh, preparing teachers to think a certain way and to, and within our school structures, um, within tribal communities, there's been so many prepackaged programs coming in that tell them how to teach. And oftentimes, there might be some good aspects to it, but on, on the flip side, there are other things where it's disconnected from the community. And so sometimes I think that there's some unlearning to do and some sense of empowerment um, that our educators can begin to embody if we create the space to do so, so that they are intentional about understanding um, whose standards 
they are infusing? Uh, what do we consider as rigor? Uh, how do we problematize that in, in, in more nuanced ways? So I think the way we approach it is that sometimes we just have to, we have to do the labor. We have to put in the labor to create curriculum uh, that is going to be reflective of our values, our identity, simultaneously meeting the Western uh, academic uh, standards and, and literacy. Part of this labor that Professor Garcia is referring to may involve a careful and honest look at the power and political backdrop of nationwide standards and making a decision accordingly. Paul Gorski believes that while standards have been used to overshadow more complete pushes for rigor championed by education researchers of color, they don't necessarily have to be used that way. I do think that most people who are uh, advocating for equity and justice and fighting for equity and justice in schools would say that we have to have high expectations, we have to have standards that aren't uh, variable based on people's racial identities or socioeconomic status or, or whatever it is. But I think part of what's happened is that word standards has been uh, co-opted by a neoliberal school movement whose goals are not that. Uh, and part of whose goals are kind of erasing the kinds of things that, and, and you look at uh, Gloria Lassen-Billings, you know, she's even written about She's created this model that's built on this foundation of racial justice, but you look at how that's being applied in most schools related to standards and, and achievement. And in most schools, they're taking, they're removing the racial justice part and basically implementing it like it's cultural competence. Like I'll sing and dance with my students, and that's you know, you know, there might be a way to connect with students that way, but that's not what she's talking about. Uh, so, uh, so, I, so I think there's two different ways we can look at standards. One is the way that's been talked about by this, you know, we set this uh, arbitrary line somewhere and say, everybody, regardless of everything, has got to be at the same line. That's nonsensical anyway. That's completely arbitrary that everyone in fifth grade is going to learn at the same pace. The, but you know, if, if I'm looking at standards as what do I need to do so that every student achieves to their fullest capability and I'm not making presumptions about what that is based on their racial identity or their class or, or whatever, uh, I think that's kind of an equity uh, lens on it. Columbia University professor and author of the new book Ratchetdemic, Reimagining Academic Success, Dr. Chris Emden also encourages practitioners to be mindful of key differences in intent and purposes between culturally responsive teaching and mainstream academic standards, and that the power of standards for use of good or bad is all in the eye of the beholder. I think that for educators of color have always wanted high expectations. They've always wanted rigor. They've always wanted the success of young people. They've always wanted them to be able to have better opportunities. They've always seen college attainment and success as a path towards a certain form of that brilliance. The only difference has been, how do you think we're going to get there? That's all. Now, the other folks' approach to getting there has oftentimes been extract out the culture, make it more, uh, more, uh, more, more uniform, uh, hyper-standardize the approach. But the goals are the same. Let's be clear. I think academic standards are essential. I think folks who don't have high expectations of young folks of color, if they didn't have standards that are academically rigorous, they would just have kids chilling. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, 
And, and what I tried to say earlier is that standards are love, but even love gets translated into something that's ugly when it's coming from a place or from a person who is flawed and broken. So would the standards be a flower or weed? It could be either or based on who's the gardener. Um, you know what I mean? It could be something that, that, that people use as a mechanism to not allow young folks to flourish. Or it could be something that people use to be able to allow that garden to be fully fertilized and, 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 and fully, fully grow. And it's really all in the, it's all in the hands of the person who is cultivating the garden. Professor Emden brings up an extremely relevant point in education. High quality academic standards, like any other instructional tool with potential for good, has the potential to be weaponized. Whether they are used to build or destroy, it all greatly depends on the systems that commission them and or the mindset of those who apply them. The standards, in a way, have always reminded me of the Bill of Rights and their following amendments. They are great expectations and guide points to have, but they are only as good as the system that supports them and the people who believe in providing them for everyone. So even if education for liberation wasn't the primary intention for the tools, using them as only one tool for that purpose always has been and remains a personal goal of mine that I invite others to consider. As long as there is an awareness that standards aren't a holy cure-all and that these standards aren't wholly original, overlapping with age-old educational practices and philosophies that educators of color have valued and executed in this land for some time. What does a healthy consideration of both look like? What skills need to be developed by educators to use standards for good? And what politics and beliefs need to be navigated or confronted so that we can use the tool and that the tool doesn't use us. The exclusion of bodies and instructional brilliance and the instructional navigation educators of color must commit to further confirms a personal truth that in order to become a change agent for educational equity, we have to know three things. One, we have to know that we are part of an educational system that upholds policies and practices that are historically and inherently racist. Two, we have to know that being in this system means that we are participants in it and are therefore accountable for our contributions. And most importantly, three, using our systemic awareness coupled with a strong knowledge of self, students, content, context, and instruction will not only allow us to be non-complicit participants in this system, but change agents from within it. As we go through this history, we will see that this is not easy work, but we will also see how this work is not only possible, but necessary. For episode eight, which is our finale of this series, we'll explore how the legacies, past and living, can be authentically integrated into a liberatory model of education. In between now and next episode, we invite you to open up your communities to discuss this history and its connections to our perceptions of education in America. What role has implicit bias played in not embracing best practices and pedagogy curated and innovated by educators of color? How do the standards get appropriately leveraged as a tool for equitable instruction? How can the standards and culturally responsive teaching practices be cooperative tools to produce the best content and pedagogy for teachers of color to implement best practice? 
Reflection and discussion about our past and present can produce the most fruitful future. I would like to thank the executive producers for this episode, Alicia Stewart and Lydia Ramos-Mendoza. I would like to thank Professors Jeremy Garcia, Valerie Shirley, Kofi Lomate, Chris Emden, Alfred Tatum, Tiffany King, Dr. John B. King, Baba Sharif Elmeki, Dr. Tanji Marshall, Equity Warrior Paul Gorski, and Grassroots Educator Corey Carter for sharing their time, wisdom, and embracing their cultural inheritance of having the duty to share knowledge holistically, intergenerationally, and communally. Until the next episode, I wish you all fair learning journeys. Peace and progress. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by Unbound Ed, where we seek to serve educators and students across the country by keeping our work and learning grounded within the intersection of equity, instruction, content, and standards. For more about our work, please visit unboundedorg for resources such as our free, high-quality curriculum and the Anti-Bias Toolkit, a three-part guide for facilitating conversations about race, bias, and privilege among teachers and leaders. We also encourage you to go deeper into equitable instructional practices by attending one of our new interactive virtual summits. You can also visit unbounded.org forward slash virtual summit to learn more about how you can bring the experience straight to your school, district, organization, or entire state. If you want to expand your content knowledge on the topics we've just explored, we strongly recommend diving into these texts. Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain Promoting Authentic Engagement and Rigor Among Culturally and Linguistically Diverse Students by Zaretta Hammond If you listen, we will stay. Why Teachers of Color Leave and How to Disrupt Teacher Turnover by the Education Trust Our Stories, Our Struggles, Our Strengths Perspectives and Reflections from Latino Teachers by the Education Trust Common Core State Standards Structuring and Protecting Equitable Pathways for African American Boys by Alfred Tatum Culture, Literacy, and Learning, Taking Bloom in the Midst of the Whirlwind by Carol D. Lee. Ratchet Demick, Reimagining Academic Success by Chris Emden. Other People's Children, Cultural Conflict in the Classroom by Lisa Delpit. The Dream Keepers, Successful Teachers of African American Children by Gloria Latson Billings. And Culturally Responsive Teaching, Theory, Research, and Practice by Geneva Gay. We'll see you next time on the next episode of The Complexion of Teaching and Learning. Welcome, good folks, to the B-side of The Complexion of Teaching and Learning, where we talk a bit with one educator of color to get a little insight into their world and their praxis with how they decide to approach education, considering the educational lineages they come from and the type of frictions they may experience as a result of being in the westernized education system. And today we have the honor of speaking with the good brother, Bradley Paulus. Uh, this man is a UPenn graduate, um, was a part of the American Indian Leadership Program at UPenn, um, which kind of allowed him to be able to navigate the spaces and, and get the skills and keep his own skills he had before he entered that institution and became an educator right around my neck of the woods in what is often misnomered as upstate New York. Uh, for the Onondaga Nation. Um, he is a, a community activist where he, uh, where he lives in his uh, nation. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, Brother Paulus, welcome to the show. <laughs> uh, Brandon. Uh, good to be here. 
right, all right, good brother. You have to break down that greeting that you just gave. Me because, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I'm not too well versed um, in in any language, <laughs> uh, let alone any indigenous one. So, um, when the Haudenosaunee or uh, the Onondaga, uh, when we greet each other, uh, we we start with a Nyoeha scanner, which break breaks down to I'm thankful that you are well. Awesome. Thank you. And I, and I wish mm -hmm. the same. And I don't want to, I think, you know what, I, I think as a, as a person who is monolingual, I got some Spanish skills, but not enough. Mm -hmm. I, as a person who's monolingual um, and as an educator, I'm thinking about educators who may not be exposed to kids' languages, but they may want to try, but they also don't want to insult <laughs> by like, right. you know, butchering it. Um, so I wish you the same <laughs> uh, without butchering the return. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. And yeah. that actually makes me think about like how in, in your school, in, in your school district um, is is Lafayette Central School District, right? And it's, um, is, is it connected to, or is it like within the umbrella of the Onondaga Nation? Um, the Onondaga Nation sits um, north of Lafayette. And so in the 1950s, um, the New York State and Lafayette School District partnered to, uh, to be a cohort in teaching the people of the Onondaga Nation. Um, the Onondaga Nation has had a school since the 1850s. But it wasn't until um, the 1950s when we started uh, working with the Lafayette uh, Central School District. So there's a, a elementary school that's on the nation, um, and then once the, the it's a K through eight building, and then once the kids leave there, they go to the high school to be with the rest of the children at the um, Lafayette School District. Gotcha. Um, so I was going to ask a question around. Uh, Haudenosaunee language being used in the schools, but I'm going to pause that for a moment um, because you brought up the fact that uh, there's been an Onondaga Nation school since 1850. Mm -hmm. um, if you could, how would you describe the evolution of that school from the 1850s? Because on the show, we talk a lot about um, Native American schooling in the 1850s, in the 1900s, and it being an assimilationist, like culturally genocidal kind of agenda, right? Yes. Um, yes. The whole uh, Carlisle Indian School, kill the Indian, save the man uh, mentality Correct. that was going on. Was was any of that a part of the Onondaga Nation School in the 1850s or over over the course of the arc? And if so, like how has it changed and evolved? Um, in the beginning, uh, the People of Syracuse thought the Onondagas would uh, would really like being. Uh, they saw us as intelligent and wanted uh, our children to be educated. Again, you got the uh, the cultural assimilation that goes along with it. Um, and for the first two schools, the people of the Onondaga Nation burned it down just because of that, because of the um, the lack of. Uh, trust of what was being wow. taught. Um, my grandparents um, actually went to Carlisle Indian School um, 
Yes. So it's, it's not that you hear about it. It's not that long ago. And um, my wife's grandparents went there. And you, uh, it's also the Thomas Indian School in New York. That, that's another place that um, people of the Haudenosaunee went. And you have that uh, disconnect of language from my grandparents on both our sides, fluent speakers of Onondaga, Cayuga, all the different Haudenosaunee languages. And a, and a direct cut of that languages, um, which is amazing. And then if you look at that time, um, I got someone just reached out to me just recently about asking about, do, do you have the names of the Onondaga code talkers during World War I? Because during World War I, we, there was a group of Onondagas who were fighting for the United States and they were the um, code talkers in World War World War One. Wow. Wow. I, I knew that there was um there were there were code talkers and and I think it was World War Two. Mm-hmm. Um I didn't realize it went back to World War One. That's crazy. And it's it's and one of the things we try to capture in the in the cat in the in the in the podcast is this idea of like resistance, like during these 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 moments of oppression to, to to maintain ways of teaching and learning and you just described one I didn't know that <laughs> they burned down the schools because you know they they weren't with the um they weren't with the assimilationist agenda <laughs> that were being offered uh, that was right. being offered it's really powerful um and you and but, you talked about the languages being maintained over the years what what's that like and what's that process like in the schools today that you uh you know are connected with and serve and you talk about you know a resistance to it you um this resistance is fairly new um when my sister uh, my older sister went to the um went to the, our elementary school um spanish was being taught not on a daga so it wasn't until when she, um, she was in high school when the uh, onondaga council commissioned uh, um, people to look at what was being taught in the school. Um, who were the people teaching it? What were being taught? What are the different things being taught? And at that time, um, the commission reported back that there is no cultural connection or no uh, any um, connection back to our community that, that says these will be Onondaga children when you get done teaching. And so, um, the council said, well, that has to change. And my sister uh, was part of the, um, in the late 70s, who went to the Lafayette High School, who boycotted going to school. Because, because there's no taxes on the Onondaga Nation, we are not part of the United States or New York State. Um, the state provides funding for, for Onondagas to go to school at Lafayette. So every day you get a count of how many uh, people from the nation went to school and um, funding gets allocated to the Lafayette School District that way. So the, the, uh, the people of the high school said, well, if you don't go, then you don't get state money. So they boycotted until there was changes at the elementary school. And that was just in, in the late 70s. So when I went to start to go to school in, uh, let's see, that would have been um, 75, 
we just started having Onondaga language and culture being taught at the school. So it's in, in broad terms, it's relatively new, but it's something that's very important and the people of the nation fought very hard to have happen. Yeah, no, and thank you for bringing that up because in, in the podcast, we talk uh, a bit about um, you know, the Bilingual Education Act, but largely from a Spanish speaking lens, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you know, while that is very important, um, there are, you know, countless other languages that that can apply to um, and the resistance for um, those languages to, you know, be kept in the context is, is key and critical. So you're saying that to this present day, if you're a, a young Onondagan student, you are experiencing curriculum that incorporates uh, the Onondagan language? Yes, um, it, uh, in, in the elementary school you are. Um, that, uh, when that change happened, we were able to have uh, teachers come into the school and teach in school. And uh, we were able to have our elders come in and provide different kinds of instruction. Um, and it has really changed the people's outlook of the school. Um, because if you go back to the um, back to when my grandparents were were young, you know, when you said go to school, that meant run, you know, try try to run away from end up being sent away. Really, that's what right. really what happened. So we're uh, we are always battling that that history, that history of school being not not the best place to be. Yeah. Like, so one of the questions I had um, in general was like, how are you and, and, your, um, and your school uh, community kind of like marrying some of like the Western concepts of school, right? With the like educational lineages that would exist without, you know, European standards of what school building schedules and, you know, things like that are. And one of the things you, two of the things you already named was like the, you know, authentic inclusion and immersion of, of, of your language. And then also you kind of mentioned like the incorporation of the elders as a part of the education process. Um, why, why the elders? Um, and then also how else are you incorporating these other educational uh, or these teaching and learning norms uh, that are that are native to your culture uh, in in this modern schooling context. Um, that's that's a challenge for for all of the teachers um, in our school. Um, as as a Haudenosaunee Onondaga person, you know when you leave. You want, you want them to have that identity. As my father says, when you leave plumber school, you wanna be a plumber. When you leave the Onondaga Nation School, you wanna be Onondaga. So we have to do that. And we, but we also have the state, um, the state curricula that we have to, have to follow. And we have the different kinds of uh, curriculum needs that, that the district needs us to follow. 
and it is a hard balance. Um, so we're always trying to incorporate different kinds of things, different, uh, be as creative as we can um, with, with those things. Um, as far as other things that, that that's always a challenge is that um, our school year is different. Um, it's, uh, we try to have different, our ceremonies don't follow uh, Western, Western time or different ceremonies. We have our, our green corn ceremonies, our harvest ceremonies, our strawberry ceremonies. Uh, and so we have to take different times off. And that's always been a conflict within the school. Like, um, how does that work? You know, this is testing week and the, and the kids at the nation school are at the longhouse. How does, you know, that's always been a struggle and it always will be a struggle because it is two different cultures trying to exist within a, like you said, a traditional uh, school setting. Um, wow, that, that is quite the clash. Um, having a whole other set of holidays, um, yeah, especially during testing season, I can only imagine. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, I yes. can only imagine. You, you know, like I was speaking with some um, uh, indigenous education leaders um, based in Arizona, and they were talking a lot about uh, training teachers, uh, uh, indigenous uh, teachers, to have produce like curriculum that solves their problems. And when I hear you talk a bit about like the tension between the the cultural values and, and ways of teaching and learning versus like what's be the state and the district is asking you to do, it just makes me wonder like what are the what are the I don't know the 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 I guess creative strategic ways where all that can happen, including like solving problems. Like so, for example, I don't know if you guys still have to use um, expeditionary learning as a curriculum for middle school. But I remember there was a, um, there, there was a unit about like water, right? Um, and I forgot the name of the text, uh, but like it was a book about like the, the, the historical and political uh, truths around like water and water conservation. Um, and you know, doing my research and actually just being from the region, I remember we were driving by uh, Syracuse one time and they brought up Onondaga Lake, the person I was driving with, because um, they went to Syracuse University and they were talking about like the levels of pollution in that uh -huh. lake. And I was right. wondering like, you know, if you all had to do a unit about water, you know, is stuff like, you know, exploring the pollution about Onondaga Lake and how, you know, it can be, you know, solved for and just you know learning about it are those like are those types of moments of marrying what's being asked and what's being needed like occurring you know yeah yes exactly though anytime where where you have those kinds of instances where you have any way that you can you can uh, bridge those things you know it's encouraged um most of our uh classroom staff isn't isn't native. We just have a few, a few uh, Onondaga classroom teachers. We have um, Onondaga um, language and culture teachers, which I am one of. I used to be a classroom teacher, but they found my need to be more, um, to be able to see all of the classes that was, um, that would be more beneficial. Um, 
but yeah, it is. And so we are often used as a resource to be into different classes, like coming, we, all of us are not afraid of being in another classroom, taking whatever information, creating new information, which has really been a, 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 what I've done a lot of is where all of us have done, where you're always creating new information because, you know, um, that really hasn't been a part of, I'm glad there's a great surge in authors having native voices and that always hasn't been. So there hasn't a lot of material for that, um, for us to, um, to draw upon. But so we've been doing a lot of that on, on our own. Yeah, no doubt. I, I, and that's one of the, we didn't talk about this in the podcast directly, but that I feel like definitely can be a burden of like educators of color, like the need to create. It's like a burden and like a blessing because it's something that sometimes we feel like we want to do. We want to make sure that um, identities are affirmed, uh, you know, learning is real, right? right? So we won't, we have no problem going out of our way to create the material. Um, but at the same time, that's its own, uh, you know, unique tax that other right. folks. Right. We don't turn to page seven. There's no page seven yet, unless you write the six before and then the seven through 12 after. <laughs> that's right. No, that's right. There's, there's, there's all this looking and scanning and creating mm -hmm. and the nuance. Like it's, it's, it's a lot. It's, it's definitely a lot. A lot of times you always feel like you're teaching or explaining. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and that's just because there's any history that's not the, the mainstream history, you know, is, it, it's hard for people to, to know because you have no idea to look, where to look. Um, I did a, uh, this one teacher asked me to come to her classroom, which is in the next town that sits um, right next to the nation. Like I can walk to this town. And one of the uh, little girls, little fourth graders asked, are people from Onondaga able to leave the area? Because wow. they didn't, you know, they didn't, they've never seen an Onondaga person before. They didn't know about Onondaga people. So if I've never seen one before, then you just must stay, you know, can, can you even leave your home? because they're not exposed to it. So I, I give that teacher credit for reaching out um, to, to show that. But again, it's, you're always teaching, you're, you're always reviewing. Um, and then sometimes when you, you uh, a few years ago, the uh, EL, I think it's uh, Enchanted, I forget what the, uh, they did a fourth grade uh, unit where for, for testing, and it was about the Haudenosaunee and the teachers, at Onondaga Nation School were so upset that we had to try to uh, re rewrite <laughs> what, what they did. And that goes back to what you said, you're always working, you're always rewriting. Um, so, so that was a good thing. Yeah. A lot of work, but it was a good thing. Oh, for sure. Um, what's her name? Uh, Gloria Latson Billings talks a lot about the, if you're, if you're being, you know, culturally responsive in your education, you're often doing one of three things, either constructing curriculum, either deconstructing curriculum or reconstructing curriculum, right? <laughs> um, and it sounds yes. like that's what I had to do. It's, it's crazy to hear, you know, uh, 
from a, from a child who will, you know, speak truth. That's what children do. Um, even if they don't necessarily speak a direct truth, they'll speak a direct truth about the society if, through their questions, right? And that question mm -hmm. is like a very big question and says a lot. Um, and one of the things that I think I've been learning a lot about and getting more a solid understanding on, and and I think the 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 country or the United States need to, needs to really think about more is like this idea of invisibility, right? Of, of indigenous folks. Um, how, what role does that play and how y'all, uh, you, you, you said it to a certain degree, right? In terms of like challenging, uh, you know, EL and engage New York and those folks, right? And by reconstructing their curriculum. Um, but how else, what are the other things that um, come with uh, this invisibility factor when you're trying to educate your own. Because on one hand, I, I see like how poisonous that is. Like on another hand, like when I look at your school and the architecture of the school and how it matches like, you know, so many of the, uh, the, the, the symbolic like, um, cultural values of the Haudenosaunee, or right. like the general meeting room with the uh, creation story turtle at the, at the, mm -hmm. at, and, and the, on the floor and mm -hmm. the, the nation's uh, uh, picture like represented through windows, right? Like, I, I feel like when, when you are with your own, you're able to do those things without so many people looking and wondering like, oh, why do they have to do this? Or why do they have to do that, right? <laughs> right. Like, so. Can what does this mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Like, exactly, right? You don't have yeah. to over explain to anybody because you're with your own, but at the same time, there's an invisibility when you're with your own. Like, can you talk a little bit about that uh, kind of like that experience of invisibility and, and, and the ways that it's impacted uh, your community and your school? I think that the invisibility is that um, for, for some people, it's just, um, it's easier. It's easier just to just to not uh, say that oh, there's the Onondaga Nation. That it's just easier. Let's let's just keep let's just keep learning what we're learning. Why do we have to try to change? Why do we have to have different ideas? What? Why? 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 And and we, and we have to say it's important because that's who we are. If we don't have a language, if we don't have a culture, we always say, "Then who are we?" Those the those are our main our 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 main tenets about being being Haudenosaunee and Onondaga. Um, because if if you don't know who you are, if you don't have your language, and then those symbols of the Hiawatha Belt that you see all throughout New York State, it doesn't really mean mean that much. Um, it's just uh, relics of of something that happened in the past, and I think that's something that all Indigenous people have been, you know, fighting the idea that we are past that something that uh, is relegated to, you know, westerns, old time westerns, and and you know, and uh, logos and uh, mascots, and yeah. so it's 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 hard, so it's easier to say. Yes, there was once native peoples here, 
um, it's much harder to say yes that they're still here and um, they're a part of our community and this is what they have to say. You talked about creating materials. One of the first materials I saw you that you created was the video about like what is the wampum belt with this mm. young girl and you're talking to this young girl about wampum and you then like you are now are like <laughs> oddly not oddly oddly is not the best word like extraordinarily like peaceful <laughs> and calm like I remember when I hopped on this call and then you started talking I was like oh I gotta dial it down a bit I gotta relax <laughs> right <laughs> Um, what role would you say that plays in your pedagogy and your instruction? Like this, 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 this calmness that you offer, uh, even in a virtual space. Cause even right now I'm like, all right, you probably should calm down a little bit. It's all good. <laughs> um, part of, role? part of being Haudenosaunee, um, is, um, our language and what we call first, we always call it our Ganohanyu the words that come before all else. And during this is what we do is we take the time every day, anytime we meet anybody, where we take the time and we give thanks. And we give much kind thanks for everything. And the first thing we thank is the people who we see because seeing you must mean that you're healthy. And that's a good thing. You may have had troubles along the way getting here, but it is I'm glad that you are well, that we're able to meet. And we give thanks right from the mother earth, to the medicines, to the trees, to the plants, to the waters, to our food, to the air, to the, um, to the winds, to the uh, animals, all the way up to our, our, um, our creator who gives us much love every day. And when you do that, things get calm. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see and feel that <laughs> um, even in the virtual space. Uh, and what, in addition to like the videos, cause there's, there's one with the young lady and then there's one, I believe with your son, right? Where mm -hmm. um, he, he does some uh, uh, songs and, and plays that drum. Mm -hmm. When in, in tradition, in like, you know, school settings, like how have you seen this particular uh, way of being and teaching and learning of like practicing constant gratefulness uh, impact um, your school community or the learning process within schools? Um, a lot of times it's something that um, kids really look forward to in our, in our school. It's something that, um, that they know they'll get nowhere else. Um, even though we're technically called a public school, it's just the kids from the nation who, who are there. There's, there's no one else. Um, and only people who are Haudenosaunee descent live on the Onondaga nation. Um, and so singing songs, learning language is something, learning history, um, is is so integral about making a connection and they see these people they see these teachers in the classroom and then they see them you know walking around the neighborhood they see them in the longhouse and it's a, it's just a uh something that the kids really really connect to um it's a special place and and it it is something that 
um, really is is something that we are working hard to keep keep that way. But it is a daily struggle. No doubt. So um, I do have to be sensitive for time. Um, I feel like I can continue to ask tons of questions and, and, and learn a lot. Um, and I thank you, Mr. Paulus, for your time and your wisdom and um, carrying on uh, your educational lineages uh, despite them constantly being, uh, I guess, challenged and, 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 and you know, pushed against. Um, so the final question I'll ask, because uh, I, I, I read a bit about your, your experience at Penn State and mm -hmm. um, how your American Indian Leadership Program experience kind of, you know, helped you in your growth as a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, and which made me think about like the people in our lives that we, we value as educators that sharpen our role as educators, but then also the people we may just only read about, but we never really, uh, you know, meet, um, but still inspire us. So who would you say is your favorite educator in person? Like somebody who you've personally met and, and interacted with and they, they taught you a lot. And then who is your favorite educator in print? Like somebody whose ideas you've read, but hadn't had necessarily gotten the opportunity to meet, um, but, they, but they stick with you. Ooh, that, that's tricky. Um, at Penn State, Dr. Gajar was really someone who really um, uh, took me under her wing and really, you know, um, really let me uh, foster and, and grow my ideas to be, uh, to have a strong foundation so that when I went, when I was able to go into the classroom, um, I was ready. And I, I am thankful for that. Teachers that inspire me, I look really close to home. Um, my sister, uh, my, my older sister I talked to you about, she has been teaching at the Onondaga Nation School for 41 years. Um, she has um, someone that I, I always that I look for and and for inspiration. And my wife is the um, has been teaching at the school for I think fifteen years. And so those are two people who really make the connection of how do we make sure that um, at the end of the day we try to do our best to make sure we're making that connection between the the Onondaga culture and and history and the uh, the, the demands of um, of the of the district, which is again it's 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 um, a battle. Sometimes sometimes they coincide, um, but a lot of times it's just more work, which we are happy to do. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Paulus, for your uh, time wisdom and your work um definitely has been an honor having you on um for those who have been tuning in you've been listening to the complexion of teaching and learning of the b-side um you can check us out on uh, itunes of course check out previous episodes on itunes uh, spotify uh, soundcloud um, and stay tuned for other updates around what we do uh, with the podcast and through unbounded you all have a great day and
may uh, you take away as much from this as possible. Peace and progress.